the numbers all go to 11. Look, right across the board. 11, 11, 11, and... Oh, I see. And most amps go up to 10? Exactly. Does that mean it's louder? Is it any louder? Well, it's one louder, isn't it? It's not 10. You see, most blokes, you know, will be playing at 10. You're on 10 here, all the way up, all the way up, all the way up. You're 10 on your guitar. Where can you go from there? I don't know. Nowhere. Exactly. So what we do is, if we need that extra little push over the cliff, you know what we do? Put it up to 11. 11. Exactly. One louder. Why don't you just make 10 louder and make 10 be the top number and make that a little louder? These goes to 11. Welcome to Your Pick, a film podcast. I'm Geneva. And I'm Tatum. We are two friends who love movies and love sharing them with each other. Each week, we take turns picking a film that is close to our hearts and talk about why it moves us, to tears, to laughter, and everything in between. We celebrate the craft of filmmaking, as well as the unique and personal ways we find meaning in the movies we watch. Back again, Tatum, only a few days after our last recording. Have you watched anything new in the interim? I'm checking right now. Nope, I have not. (laughs) I've just been watching a lot of YouTube, to be honest, because I haven't had like hours of free time. It's more so I only have like 30 to 40 minutes. And so I'm like, I'll just I'll just turn on some some YouTube whatever stuff. But yeah, I haven't watched anything. How about you? Yeah, Um, I. Pretty similar. I've not logged anything new. I did um, come home yesterday from work to find my roommate watching The Banshees of Inishirin, which was great. Ooh, first time? First time for her, yeah. So I sat down and finished it with her. And oh my goodness, what an incredible movie. (laughs) Oh, it's so good. I need to rewatch it. You should. I haven't seen it. It's on Hulu right now. I haven't seen it since it was in theaters. Yeah, it was on like HBO Max for a while and then it moved over and... Yeah. Actually, no, I own it now that I think about it. Wait, you own it on DVD? Yeah. I I got it from um a family member who gets the like for your consideration DVDs. Oh, nice. And so I think I, I'm pretty sure that's one of the ones that I have. Oh, that's awesome. But anyway. Yeah. yeah. Well, great movie. Anyone who has out there who has not seen it, highly recommend. It is just, it is so well written. The acting is incredible. The the themes and the discussion that it inspires is great. And it's also just very funny in a very dark way. Very dark and funny. Yeah, which I tend to forget because it is so heavy in certain ways, but it's also very, very funny. Um, so, yeah, the Banshees of Anishirin. Uh Before we started recording, Jadeva and I were talking a little bit about like specific memes or whatever. And I, I saw this meme a few weeks ago that was, um, it had like, like half of the the top half of the graphic was uh the top half of the graphic was Brendan Gleason and the bottom half of it was Colin Farrell and the top half of it was Brendan uh sorry I'm really describing this poorly but the concept is like writers like their feelings towards their screenplays or or it's like their screenplay talking to the writer or no Sorry, I'm explaining this really poorly. So the top <laughs> one is Brendan Gleeson, and it's the writer talking to the screenplay. And then the bottom one is Colin Farrell responding. And so the top is, I just don't like you no more. And then the bottom one is, but you liked me yesterday. <laughs> We've all been there. <laughs> anyway, I described that super poorly, but I that was a meme that I saw that I really liked. I got it. Any Anyone who's seen the movie will understand what you mean. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, should we get straight into the movie? I got to be honest. I I'm very excited to talk about this movie, but I also feel like I don't really know what we're going to talk about because I feel like we've said that so many times and every time we manage to talk for like an hour and a half. We're very good at talking about movies. <laughs> Even if we're not saying anything, we still are saying stuff. Yeah. This is our first kind of, I guess, straight you know, pure comedy that we've done since Monty Python and the Holy Grail. We've done other comic movies, but kind of combined with other genres. But um, yeah, I don't know. I feel like a lot of this discussion is just going to be me going, 
And I love this scene. <laughs> I love this scene. <laughs> anyway, um, let's get into it, though. Today on the show, we are discussing This is Spinal Tap from 1984, directed by Rob Reiner, written by and starring Christopher Guest, Michael McKean, Harry Shearer, and Rob Reiner. The film centers on the fictional British rock band Spinal Tap and their disastrous U.S. tour, in which the band's plummeting popularity is accompanied by onstage mishaps, changes in management, and inter-band squabbling. The idea for the film began uh, with the creation of the fictional band Spinal Tap, referred to as Britain's loudest rock band. In 1978, Guest, McKean, Shearer, and Reiner all collaborated together on a TV sketch show pilot that included a fake music video. Guest and McKean improvised the characters of Nigel Tufnell and David St. Hubbins, the self-absorbed British rockers at the center of Spinal Tap. Over the years, they kept coming back to these characters, and gradually the idea arose to make a comedy in the style of the rock band documentaries, or rockumentaries, that were becoming popular at the time. Their inspiration was films like 1967's Don't Look Back, about Bob Dylan's England tour, and 1978's The Last Waltz, about a Thanksgiving Day concert by the band. The film This Is Spinal Tap would be played straight and filmed to look as realistic as possible, causing many audience members at the time to think it was about a real rock band. Because of this, the film helped to pioneer the genre of the comedic fake documentary, inspiring later movies like Pop Star, Never Stop Never Stopping, and shows like Documentary Now. The film was Rob Reiner's directorial debut. He would later go on to direct classics like The Princess Bride, A Few Good Men, and When Harry Met Sally, which we did an episode on a few weeks ago. All the dialogue was improvised by the actors, with the exception of a speech given by Sir Dennis Eaton Hogg at the record launch party. All the music was written and performed by Guest, McKean, and Shearer themselves. All right, so this is can, a... Can I just say real quick? Yeah, please. I literally was, when I was going to like share about my relationship with this movie or whatever my initial thoughts on it, I was literally going to say how this movie like reminds me of pop star never stopping and documentary now I, like literally those <laughs> were the two things that i was going to say great minds think alike so i yeah that was really funny that you those were the two that you mentioned <laughs> have you seen either of those mm -hmm. well i've i've not seen all of documentary now i've only seen a couple episodes here and there but i've seen pop star never stop never stopping a couple times okay yeah gotcha. i love that movie that's it's very funny it's a great movie Oh, we should talk about that on the podcast Ooh, at some point. I would be down. Not the beast. <laughs> it's the queen. <laughs> that whole song he has about how the Mona Lisa is overrated. <laughs> oh, my God. It's a great movie. Anyway. Anyway. Um, okay. So Spinal Tap is a movie that I grew up with. It's like a family favorite. Um, <clears throat> I remember even before seeing it, my mom just describing certain scenes to me and cracking up, which... I have now carried on that tradition because I will try and get all my friends to watch this movie and I'll start describing scenes and then I start cry laughing and they're just kind of looking at me confused because they've they've no idea what I'm talking about. Like what? <laughs> yeah, I feel like this movie is, um, I don't know, among our generation, maybe not quite as known as some other comedies of this era. I might be wrong about that. I might just be hanging out with the wrong people. But um, yeah, I love this movie so much. It's, I feel like it's a very... Um, it's a very particular style of humor, and I think it can probably be a bit divisive. It is very, very dry. It's very much like we are just going to play everything absolutely straight. Every character in this believes absolutely in who they are and what they're doing. And they're so the humor comes from the fact that they are so self-absorbed and all of these terrible, <laughs> cringy things are happening to them. I just find it hilarious. This morning, as I opened up the quotes page to try and uh, find the quote that I, the IMDb quotes page to try and find the quote that I wanted so I can put it in our outline, I was just started reading through all the quotes from this movie and I was cackling with laughter and my poor roommate outside my room was probably wondering what was happening. But um, yeah, I love this movie. I find it hilarious. Uh, Tatum, was this your first time seeing this movie? Yes, it was my first time seeing this movie. I, I've heard about it before. Um, I'd heard about it several times throughout the years. Um, but yeah, it was never a movie I was like shown or anything like that. Um, so 
I had somewhat of an idea of what this was going to be getting into it, but, um, yeah, it definitely was a, was a fresh, a fresh experience. So like I said before, this definitely is something that reminded me of documentary now in particular, because pop star never stop, never stopping. It is like a mockumentary of a musician, but it's not trying to, it's not like dated in terms of trying to replicate things we've seen in the past. It just kind of feels like its own thing. Whereas documentary now is like, it starts out with legitimately mocking actual documentaries and then it, it goes off in its own way, but it's still trying to kind of capture a specific era. And so I feel like this movie kind of had a similar sort of vibe. Um, I definitely did have a feeling while watching this that I wish that I had seen this when it came out before this type of humor existed because there was part of me that was like oh I've I've seen this before this doesn't feel entirely unique to me whereas I feel like at the time it was probably groundbreaking yeah Um, well it's like the old um oh Shakespeare he's such a cliche (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah so I found myself wishing that I'd kind of seen it with fresh eyes not having any sort of other reference for it like for the genre Um, But that being said, I did have a lot of fun with it. These types of things, including documentary now, they're not really things that I laugh out loud to. They're just kind of movies that I sit back and I'm just like, this is so dumb. What's wrong with these people? (laughs) You know? And so the fact that I didn't laugh out loud doesn't mean that I don't think it's funny. I think it's very funny. It's just like weird. Um, And so, yeah, I mean, I think... I'm glad I watched it. I think it's a, I think it's a funny, a funny movie. Um, but for me, it doesn't really stand out as like a very spectacular experience because it doesn't feel, again, it doesn't feel unique to me. I've spent hours upon hours of watching this type of vibe through seeing every single episode of documentary now. (laughs) Um, so yeah, I will say the part of this movie that I found the funniest was, the the part that you saw me watching actually the ending where it's just like I wanted to write down the things that I thought were the funniest in that final sequence but all of them were so funny and I couldn't keep up because it's just what like three minutes of just utter nonsense um so that's definitely my favorite sequence of the movie because which I think is cool that a movie at least for me ended on a note where I was like oh this is really going out with a bang um so yeah I'm glad I watched it it was a fun time there were some surprises in there like getting Billy Crystal as a mime for like five (laughs) seconds was super random (laughs) Um, and apparently I read um one of the the articles that I read Dana Carvey was the other mime like possibly pre-SNL was he really yeah oh I did not make that connection um but yeah I, I liked hearing your little tidbit though about um about how all of the dialogue was improvised. I did not know that. Um, So I I honestly would like to watch it again, knowing that that's the case. I feel like it would be funnier to me. I wish that, I don't know. I wish they would have said something like that at the beginning of like, everything you're watching is improvised. Because I feel like I would have thought it was (laughs) funny. What are you talking about? Everything you're watching is a completely true capturing of the band Spinal Tap and their tour. And Well, no, I mean like improvised versus scripted. Like having something written that they're then acting out as opposed to like just making it up on the spot. Also, the fact that they performed all the music. I mean, I guess it's kind of obvious that they are, but... Yeah, I don't know. They're clearly very, very talented people. So I had a fun time with this. It was a fun time. Good, good. Yeah, I'm glad you liked it. It is it is kind of funny when it's like, you know, you you're so familiar with the descendants of the thing. And then you go back and watch the original thing. And you're like, well, I know what this is because I've seen (laughs) this done so many times. But yeah, this is like the grandfather of the or not the grandfather, the very cool uncle of um, that entire genre. Right. Um, Yeah. So like I said, I'm not quite sure how to structure this conversation. I mean, we can kind of go roughly chronologically just to give it some sort of structure. All right. So the the structure of the movie, as we've said, is um, a documentary, a fictional documentary, but it uh, the director of this fake documentary, who is played by Rob Reiner, the director of the actual movie, um, this character named Marty DeBergy, I think, um, so it opens with him and he's talking about how he discovered Spinal Tap. And then throughout the 
the movie, we keep cutting back to this interview with the 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 band members where they talk about the history of it. And I love these sequences because it keeps cutting back to fake um, footage of supposedly the band back in their sort of 1960s folk and psychedelic pop eras. Um, and just the, the, the music that is written for this movie is just, it's so good. It's so... Like you can tell that the um, creatives involved in this movie who are writing the music, they are genuinely extremely talented and they do such a great job of mimicking the sort of musical style of each of these eras. So they have this sort of like folk song that they're playing in the 60s and it's very like the the footage is all grainy black and white to look like the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan show. And then they have this like sort of psychedelic flower power listen to the flower people song which is just it's so colorful and and cheesy and hilarious um and then obviously in their sort of 80s like <clears throat> rock metal era um all the songs are just completely ridiculous but they also kind of legitimately slap like there are a lot of genuinely really good songs even though they're also ridiculous in my opinion i think that and i could be reaching here but i feel like this might have been what they were doing because I'm I'm familiar with you know I'm fairly familiar with rock music of this era and I feel like they were very directly trying to um imitate actual musicians at the time like there is one song where I was just thinking he is literally doing a Mick Jagger impression from the Rolling Stones like that is what this is and I feel like they're intentionally doing that and then there was another song that sounded very much so like the Eagles and I'm like okay this sounds like the Eagles and there were certain things that seemed more um, Pink Floyd influenced with this stupid idea of the freaking stone I'm like what is this Stonehenge why <laughs> this is so weird um, but yeah I think that there definitely was not only this idea of let's try and, you know, capture the music genres of the time, but I also feel like there was a meta joke within that of we are actually going to just be these bands, but singing stupid songs. There's one song they sing, I think, toward the beginning called um, Big Bottom. And so, of course, I kept thinking about Fat Bottom Girls by, is that Queen? Yeah, Queen. Fat bottom girls, you make the rocket world go round. Classic. Yeah, I... I love the music in the this movie so much. Um, the the members of Spinal Tap, you know, in this movie, Christopher Guest, Michael McKean, and Harry Shearer, they've actually done tours as Spinal Tap and done television appearances and things like that over the years since this movie has come out. Like it's basically like a real band at this point. One thing I think about the the use of these flashbacks to them in different eras, and this is not me, this is not an original thought by me. Many other people have said this, but it does kind of show that. The this band is very much there's something very artificial about them. And I don't I don't mean in the sense that they're fictional for the documentary, but in the sense that part of the reason that this band is terrible and they're dissolving is that they're very much about just jumping on the sort of cultural and um, not aesthetic, but, you know, the the sound trends of the era. They don't have an original sound. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They're very much about let's just shape ourselves to whatever is popular at the moment. <clears throat> and we happen to be catching them at the moment where this type of music is kind of changing and what they're trying to do to be offensive and edgy is no longer working. And one of the things that, that I love is that throughout the movie, in my opinion, anyway, you see that they do genuinely have talent. Like, there's that amazing scene where... The first song that they ever wrote is incredible. Yes. I, I, that was one of my favorite scenes in the movie because they're sitting in this diner and you, I don't know the name of Rob Reiner's character, but he asks them, you know, what was the first song you ever wrote? And then they're like, oh, no, we can't remember it. Let's see if we can remember it. And then they start doing it. And I'm like, this is actually, the lyrics are good. Mm -hmm. The sound is great. The drumming beat is fantastic. And then it literally is just entirely glossed over. Like Rob Ryder's character just moves on to the next question as if what he heard wasn't actually the best song they've <laughs> ever created. <laughs> like, And they made it when they were, what, nine years old? Yeah, it's beautiful. It's this little song called All the Way Home, I think. Um, kind of folky and, yeah, just really gorgeous and 
that you know they've had such a fruitful collaboration over the years. There's this great set, uh, scene too where um, Nigel is playing. <laughs> I think it's toward the end. Nigel's playing the piano for Marty, the the director, and he's playing this really oh, gorgeous, yeah. gorgeous piano piece. And he's talking about how you know it's it's very delicate. I'm just having the the sort of the notes intertwine with each other and. You know, I just, you know, I'm very inspired by Bach and Beethoven. and It's like a mock. It's, yeah, it's Mozart like a... and Bach. It's a mock. Um, yeah. And then Marty's like, oh, great. What's it called? And he says, lick my love pop. Yep. <laughs> and it's just these guys, you know, they have this talent and yet they're sort of craving for like adolescent attention. Just they can't get out of their own way, you know? Yeah, I, li- I liked how that joke kind of continued because then we have this guitar solo that's literally <laughs> a freaking I don't know if it's Mozart or Bach but I think it might be Mozart um but he just starts shredding. yes he's playing this <laughs> classical like, piece on classical the guitar shredding piano. yeah like what what is this like this is so this is like bastardizing <laughs> this song what are you doing especially after we've earlier seen him do he's like he's talking about how he feels like he can express himself artic- uh, artistically on stage through his solos and we see him do this ridiculous solo where he's just kind of like he's shredding and then he takes out this violin and he's trying to like play the guitar with the violin and it sounds terrible <laughs> and he's trying to sort of pluck and like swat at another violin or another guitar with his sneaker and it just sounds awful (laughs) and it's it's just so much like you know all the the tradition of rock stars doing ridiculous things on stage and bringing out all sorts of eclectic instruments and things like that and he's trying to do it but he can't find a way to do that that's actually you know artistically meaningful um let's see yeah so we talked about the yeah, the opening, introducing the group, their sort of history. Well, we also... I mean, we didn't talk about the um, the the very opening because I thought it was quite... I thought it was really funny how in the beginning, the the director of the film, I'm just going to keep saying Rob Reiner's character, he, he goes on this whole spiel about like, hi, my name is so-and-so and I'm a director. These I've worked on all of these. It's like he just goes on this weird random ego trip of like, I want to make sure you guys know who I am and I'm a quality <laughs> filmmaker. What I've heard. Like, it's just so, it's what, so what, weird. Why? This is so unnecessary. <laughs> what I've heard and um, <clears throat> I can't verify this because I've not seen this movie, but uh, Take This Waltz, which I mentioned before is one of the rockumentary inspirations for this movie, was directed by Mor- Martin Scorsese and... Um, <clears throat> Martin Scorsese kind of inserted himself into the documentary. And so this is kind of parodying that and just taking that to an extreme. Yeah. Brilliant. Mm -hmm. I love that. That's brilliant. I love it. So, yeah, him just being like, yeah, these guys are incredible. They're just, you know, they're known for their their loudness and their musicality and also their punctuality, which is hilarious. This is just another note that I made. But I love how you mentioned in your kind of introduction to this that you know, this this movie kind of follows a very failed U.S. tour. And I wrote down specific moments when it was like um, <laughs> their, their manager is like, yeah, yeah, we're going to Philly. It's an untapped market. We don't want to oversaturate the New York music scene. It's like, um, OK. And then they have this like plan to go to Boston. He's like, no, we're not going to Boston. Don't worry about it. It's not a. It's not that big of a college town. It's like, um, <laughs> yeah, I got that too. It's so funny. No, but all of these explanations that he keeps giving as to why they can't perform in these actually huge venues and cities are just ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, one of the funniest like things in this movie is all <clears throat> you know the way it parodies that sort of like the rock star lifestyle, and you have all these people at your beck and call to do things for you, and they they all have these huge egos, and they're really childish and don't uh, you know can't take any amount of criticism, and so you have Ian, their manager, and then um, just other people throughout the film. He's doing a pretty good job given like the band that he's having to deal with, in my opinion. Oh yeah, I'm when he is defending himself in that scene later on, which we'll talk about. I'm fully on Ian's side. Yeah, <laughs> but um, you have Ian, and then all these other hangers on and record people that they're working with and they're all the way they're all dancing around their egos and trying to take all of the 
issues with um, sales onto themselves, even though they know it's not their fault. It's the fault that the band is just not popular anymore. But that one guy when they're at the record signing and no one comes to the record signing and he's just like, it's my fault. You know, it's my fault. I, I, I'm supposed to be the advanced man. I didn't get anyone here. Kick my ass. Yeah, I got the timing wrong. Here, kick my ass. Just kick my ass. Yeah. <laughs> and he like, they're all like, what? <laughs> I got the timing wrong. I got the timing wrong. I'm like, what does that even mean? Yeah, it's, it's so funny. Yeah. Um, oh, sorry. Early on, we also discover an important part of the band lore, which is that their drummers keep dying in really bizarre ways. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, that was crazy. I was like, what is this? And and one of them, like, they offer no definition as to what this means. But they're just like, yeah, he just exploded. <laughs> Like, what are you ta- like? What does that mean? But they never define what exploded is. Yeah. They're just like, you know, dozens of people spontaneously combust every year like, and no one really reports about? on it. Like, what are you talking about? Part the of first was guy, like, he dies in an um... up. Like, were you tripping and you just like imagine that you had a drummer and this happened? <laughs> like, what is what is going on here? <laughs> and uh what is it the first guy he dies in a tragic gardening accident um <laughs> yeah it's crazy it's absolutely They're, crazy the the police said it was best left unsolved <laughs> <laughs> i'm sorry so much of this movie is going to be me describing something and then just completely cracking up on mike no that's okay i'm sure that like anyone who listens to this podcast that also loves the movie is going to be right there with you. So those are the people we're talking to. Those are the people you're talking to. That's the people I'm talking to. No one else is going to be able to understand. Yeah. (laughs) Again, it's 82 minutes. If you haven't seen it, pause this, watch it, then come back. Yep. (laughs) It's so good. Um, Anyway. Yeah. There's, so their drummers keep dying in unexplained ways. At one part, Marty is, um, interviewing their current drummer and he's like do you fear for your life and he's like well the law of averages says it can't happen to everyone right <laughs> yeah oh my goodness so we have the the sort of launch party um as they're about to head off on their tour and this is the first time that we hear that they're there's an issue with their album, with the cover, album cover being extremely <laughs> offensive and sexist and their PR, the woman who does their PR, who's played by Fran Drescher. And I was like, oh, Fran Drescher from The Nanny. Very relevant right now, especially because she's the president of the SAG, of the Screen Actors Guild. And she's been very vocal. Yeah. So when I made that connection, I was like, oh, the president of Screen Actors Guild is The Nanny. That's crazy. Because <laughs> I didn't know that. Right? <laughs> Yeah, there's and there's a lot of random. I'm, I don't even know if you can call them cameos because I don't know where these people were in their careers. This might be like they're on their way up and now they're much more famous. But um, yeah, Fran Drescher shows up. Angelica Houston shows up. Um, we already already mentioned that uh, Billy Crystal and I believe Dana Carvey um, have small roles. But Anyway, yeah, so we hear that their album cover is really, really offensive and sexist and they stores are one to pull it and the al- the the record company wants to to pull it um <clears throat> and basically it's this very like cynical conversation about like you know if you guys did if your last album was really popular no one would care but because your last album d- didn't do well we're gonna get all up in arms about this extremely sexist album cover which we never actually see i don't want to um, see it it's like no 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 thank you <laughs> But we do. I love that scene. Um, I think it's a little bit later where Marty's just reading reviews of their previous albums, and we see the covers, and they're all oh just gosh. the most ridiculous, pretentious things. And the but all the reviews are so snarky and hilarious. My favorite review was "shit sandwich." <laughs> yeah. Their album is called like, "Shark Sandwich," and then the review just said "shit sandwich." <laughs> shit sandwich. Um. Yeah. the The first album is called "Intravenous De Milo." Um. it's so bad let me see what else is going on so yeah they start off on their tour and then it's just basically uh you know various anecdotes that happen as things just kind of go off the rails for them they're singing this one song um uh, i think it's called hellhole and (laughs) it's just a small thing but nigel is like he's leaning backward on his guitar and then he goes all the way down and then he realizes he can't get up and so you have a tech guy who comes out on tech guy wearing a really bright t-shirt too like not in black (laughs) just in like this really bright orange t-shirt and he's like dragging nigel around trying to help him get up (laughs) 
<laughs> oh my gosh um you got the whole the the scene that we quoted at the beginning where nigel's showing off his guitar collection he's like these numbers go up to 11 and marty's like but why <laughs> and nigel's like because <laughs> what i don't understand don't touch the guitar i i wasn't i wasn't gonna touch it okay but don't like don't get close to it don't talk about it don't think about it okay can i look at it no actually no let's go over here now <laughs> like okay oh my gosh <laughs> When he asks him to to hear the guitar, and he's like, "I don't, I don't hear any." Yeah. He's like, "Well, if you, if I was playing though, you would." And he's like, "Okay." It's like, "Yes, that's how guitars work." Yeah, so they've got issues with this hotel they go to, where instead of instead of seven suites, booking them seven rooms, they give them one room on <laughs> seventh the seventh floor, floor. <laughs> for fourteen people. And isn't that when, um, isn't that when What's-His-Face's girlfriend really starts showing up or is that later? Um, we, she's not shown up yet, but this is around the time that we first hear about. So David, David St. Humbins, um, he has this girlfriend named Janine who, um, he calls him and tells him that he's going to, she's going to join them on tour. And Nigel is very unhappy about this. Nigel does not like Janine. And... I was reading, I'll, I'll read later on an excerpt from Roger Ebert's uh, review of this film. He gave it a four stars. He really loved this film. But his interpretation of this um, relationship between the three of them is that it's sort of a love triangle where Nigel sort of has a one-sided crush on David and is kind of jealous of Janine, which I'm a little of two minds. I don't know if I would go so far as to call it a crush, but there is this very... One of the things I think that really works about this movie is that there is kind of a, um, you know, a relationship dynamic that feels kind of real at the center of it, where Nigel and David have been working together for years. They know each other so well. They're best friends. They're musical partners. Um, and Janine is sort of the, you know, I guess the Yoko Ono is often the the referred to term, but she's this person who's kind of come into this relationship and she's really kind of taken over David's life and rearranged him and gotten him into all this sort of weird astrology and spirituality stuff. And Nigel's just very jealous and unhappy. And so many scenes are just Janine there saying something, say, rambling on about something, and Nigel's just fuming in the background. The fact that she thinks that Dolby is Dobly, it's like... That's very wrong. It's very wrong. <laughs> no. No, Janine. No, no. Um <clears throat> let me see. They the band goes to um they're they go to visit Graceland while they're on their tour and they're visiting Elvis's grave and they try to sing Heartbreak Hotel and they're trying to do the harmony and it sounds terrible. Oh my god, it's so bad. It's so bad. Oh, it's just hilarious. Is that Elvis's actual grave? I read somewhere that no, they had filmed the whole movie in Southern California and so they just recreated it basically. Okay, gotcha. Um, There's also the concert where they have this sort of, um these like, clear plastic alien pod things that are supposed to open at the beginning of the song <laughs> get out Derek the bassist he gets stuck and the pod won't open and so through the entire song he's like hammering at the pod he's like trying to pry it open there's like a tech guy with a flamethrower who's trying to get it like I don't know what the flamethrower is gonna do and then at the very end, it finally opens and he jumps out just as everyone else is getting back into their bonds. Yep. <laughs> oh, so ridiculous. I, I really liked this little addition of Ian, the band manager, and how he has this like paddle that he yes. like carries around for like intimidation purposes. I think it's a cricket bat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we see it. I forget what it is. I meant to write this down as a note, but it was kind of during that rapid fire round of jokes at the end or close to the end. But there's one scene where something happens. Oh, no, no. It's when at the end, when um, when Nigel comes back and he's like reunited with the band or whatever, and Ian is standing there behind David's girlfriend and he's holding the thing as like, yeah, yeah, I, I won. Like, I'm the better manager. Yeah, I'm in charge again. <laughs> I'm the captain now. <laughs> yeah, well, there's that whole like, Marty's like, oh, you've got that cricket paddle. Is it kind of an affectation? He's like, yeah. Although sometimes, you know, I'll use it. And then it's just a montage of him like swipe, like crashing Destroying like TVs things. to the floor and like choking people with the cricket paddle. And yeah. Yep. <clears throat> you know, you gotta, you gotta do what you gotta do when you're the manager of a band. I guess. Yeah. 
He doesn't get the sex, drugs, and rock and roll. He has to deal with everything mm-hmm. else. For every 100 things, one thing that goes wrong, 100 things go right. And that's what he does. Mm. Yep. Well, speaking of which, um, the album has been doing poorly and they're trying to find this new kind of look or direction. Janine has these like really ridiculous astrological like masks that she wants them all to wear that Nigel is like, no. <laughs> And Ian's like, this would be really expensive. He's like, do you know how much it would cost to have the whole band dressed as animals? <laughs> She's like, they're not animals. They're signs of the Zodiac. Okay. Um, <clears throat> But anyway, this is the scene that is just, this is the one that makes me lose it the most of all of them. Oh my gosh. It's, it is so absurd. It is so, it's just mounting. It is so absolutely absurd. I didn't even know. I was like, what am I don't even know how to react to this. (laughs) So um, Nigel has this idea that we're going to, I guess we're going to do Stonehenge. Like we're going to do this song that's going to be themed after like Stonehenge and Druids and things like that. And so he draws a little Stonehenge on the napkin and he gives it to Ian to build. And then we get this scene. 18 inches. (laughs) He wants it 18 feet high, but he puts the little symbol for for inches. So Ian is like talking to Angelica Houston, who I guess is their like prop lady. And she's got this little 18 inch high Stonehenge thing. And he's like, that's great. It looks amazing. You know, the real thing's going to be great. And she's like, the real thing? What are you talking about? This This is the the real real thing. thing. (laughs) And Ian's like, oh, no. And then we get the song. Well, I love that he really tries to push it. He's like, what are you talking about? What is this? And she goes, this is exactly what I was told to do. Yeah. Like, this wasn't me trying to play a game or what. Like, I was told yeah. to make this thing Look, of this I size. was given this napkin, like, 18 inches. Yeah, he's like, how did you know? And she's like, it was on the napkin I was given. <laughs> the blame shifting in this movie is just a thing of beauty. I don't think any blame should be put on her. I think she's fully in the right. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> But there's this, uh, I love the fact that Ian does not in any way prepare the band for what's about to happen. So we get this entire song where they're all in cloaks and they're like, in the days of the Druids. Hundreds of years ago. I love how Nigel's like, no one knew who they were or (laughs) what they were doing. Uh, but then they're like they're you know they're like it's supposed to be like the coolest thing ever and like the lights and everything it's such a long introduction it's so long and then you just see it's such a long introduction and you're just waiting for it and then you see this tiny little stone <laughs> start to lower from, from like strings that are clearly <laughs> visible like you can see the strings <laughs> and it's not even like slowly <laughs> descending down it's like it's like just like jumping d- it's just so poorly produced and you just see david like staring at it with an open mouth like he cannot <laughs> believe what is happening <laughs> and then it's just like it's on the stage and it is so tiny and then they have <clears throat> which is like hilarious and also very offensive but also hilarious they have these like little people come out dressed like i suppose leprechauns and they're just like doing a jig around the Stonehenge and it is so bad and such poor taste and it is so funny. And I think afterwards they were like, you know, maybe having them be the dancers further emphasizes how small the Stonehenge was. <laughs> yeah. No, there's a great line from David afterwards. Yeah, where he's like, you know, the this mag the size of it is kind of um you know underplayed when you have a Stonehenge that's in danger of being crushed by a leprechaun. And then Ian's like, I think you're making too big a thing of it. And David's like, making a big thing of it would have been a good idea. Isn't there a same or a, a point sometime after that where someone says something like, um, yeah, so we're doing it again. And then David's like, fuck, no, we're not doing this again. <laughs> like, no. Yeah. It's like he's like, yeah, Derek is like, can I raise a practical question? Are we doing Stonehenge no. tomorrow? And they're like, fuck, no. Have you not heard this entire conversation? <laughs> oh my goodness and this is yeah this is where i just completely lose it um it is so abs like i have no other word other than absurd it's like it's it's just so absurd absurd. it's so absurd it's such a like ridiculous like there are so this there are so many things that have gone wrong for this to have happened (laughs) somehow it has 
And it's just like, it's so beautiful too because of how like earnestly pretentious they are in trying to create this edgy rock music that's tapping into the long, you know, deep magic of druids. And, you know, it's that very like metal sort of we're going to bring in kind of, um, you know, the the sort of the the outcast spiritual people from the past that and we're going to like, you know, put our sort of metal edge on it and we're going to like, you know, this is how it's it's going to be cool and artistic and unique. And they just they just think they're doing something here and they're just not. And then... No, it's it's awful. It's so Although awful. I will say, I hope that they do the Stonehenge when they actually go on tour. Like I would assume they do that in real life when they go on tour. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. Can I just say one thing, one moment that we jumped over that is probably something where like, this was a moment where I was watching this and I was like, this is, this is a humor right now in this moment. This joke that is being made is a Tatum joke. Mm -hmm. Other people probably might not find it funny, but I find it really funny. It's the scene where, um, when they're supposed to go to that, like, you know, album release meet and greet or whatever, and no one shows up. And we have this really long sequence of like the camera kind of, you know, panning around the room and it's really quiet. And we just hear one of the band members blowing his nose over <laughs> and over and over and over. Like the only thing we hear is this guy blowing his nose and he won't stop. And I'm just like, what? I forgot about How that. How long yeah. can you blow your nose for? Like, Well, what's there's happening? so many like little gags like, um, early in the movie I think it might be at the launch party Nigel and David both have like cold sores like they both have herpes and just just never commented on it's just no need to know what happened just no nope. that's just what's going on yep um yeah Derek apparently has a, a like a really bad cold when they're trying to do that album signing also we um I forgot to mention earlier but their album is finally released and it turns out that the label because of the offensive cover, the label decided to overwrite it and do, like, I guess the idea is to do uh, an alternative to the Beatles' white album, but they're doing the black album, and it's just a, a record cover that is entirely black with no writing at all. I think it could work. I think that something like that could work if they just had the name of the band and the title of the album on it. Like, the concept of having an all-black album with just, like, simple text on it, I think that's great, and it would sell really well but the fact that there's just nothing on it and and the fact that their their initial reactions are very much so along the lines of um wait but how are people gonna know it's us like isn't this just gonna look like everything like what you know they keep asking all these questions but not really finishing them but then by the end of the scene they're trying to like convince themselves that it's a good idea and they're like you know well you know it's just like it's rock and it's it's this yeah. and it's that and, it's and they're like, like how much more black could it be none none more black <laughs> yeah it's great it's, it's great. so good yeah well it's like it could work in a different context mm -hmm. because what makes the beatles the white album work is like the beatles by that point had this reputation where you know everyone was everyone knew their name everyone knew to expect quality to from their music everyone was so curious about what the um style they were going to use on their next album cover to have it be just plain white and just say the Beatles it's like that's all you need to know and it's this sort of subversion of expectations but also you know demonstrating the strength of the Beatles name and the Beatles brand that everyone's like even if it's just a pure white album with nothing on it everyone's going to buy it but they don't have the Spinal Tap does not have that reputation at this time they have a terrible reputation yep and so be, this is not going to get people excited. And they can barely even get a larger dressing room than the puppet show. <laughs> <laughs> if I told them once, I told them a thousand times. Spinal tap first, then puppet show. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, speaking of which, actually, after the whole Stonehenge debacle, um, they have this huge blowout fight with Ian. Ian is defending himself. He's like... You, I just do what I'm told. You guys, you're the creative element of this band. You know, you get, you tell me what to build, and I, I see that it's built, and like, I don't see how I can be blamed. Which I'm like, I mean, Ian can probably be blamed a bit here, <laughs> but also like, he is kind of the only one keeping this, this thing on course. So 
he quits and Janine steps up to be their manager, which of course is very upsetting to Nigel and to everyone. Well, she was she was gunning she was gunning for his job, and then and then he basically said, "I'm not going to co-manage the band. Like, if you guys want to bring this girlfriend who doesn't know the difference between Dolby and Dolby sound, <laughs> then I'm out. You know, I'm not going to manage. I'm not going to co-manage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So he quits. So Janine is now doing all of the travel arrangements and as gigs keep getting canceled she's trying to find them new ones and the ones she finds them are really terrible (laughs) so um they go to what do they do next oh actually we have (laughs) we have this great interview segment with uh derek the bassist (laughs) he talks about how um he's like yeah Nigel and David like we're so lucky to have two visionaries in the band he's like they're you know they're they're both geniuses but they're so different they're like fire and ice and they're like Marty's like so what's your own role in the band and he's like you know I'm supposed to be like kind of between them so I guess I'm like lukewarm water (laughs) (laughs) yep I just found that hilarious um Yeah, so one of their gigs falls through and what Janine books them into is an Air Force base. Yeah. (laughs) And you have this amazing scene where it's, um, I think it's Fred Willard, the actor playing this like Air Force sergeant or something like that who welcomes them. And he keeps doing all these like really lame, like dad humor. I I didn't say dad humor as a pejorative. He does these like all these really lame jokes and he's like, hey, my hair is getting a little shaggy. You know, they should... People are going to think I'm part of the band. And they're all just like, why are we here? (laughs) And like the people dancing inside before they get there are just like, you know, it's just very sort of gentle. Like uh, no one really knows how to to dance. I love when the the sergeant is like, oh, yeah, we're real big fans of yours. Uh, Not you, your band specifically, but, you know, just like the whole rock and roll genre. (laughs) Yeah, but just rock music in general. (laughs) Which is like one of the most insulting things you could say. <laughs> but he seems like he genuinely doesn't understand that what he's saying is insulting. No, yeah. He's he's like genuinely very welcoming. And like he, I mean, he clearly doesn't know anything about who they are. But he's like, yeah, we're so happy you're here. Like you're, you know, this is our at ease month where we're just going to let down our hair a little bit and get into the groove. Like he's so, he's so square. And then the band Spinal Tap plays this song called Sex Farm Woman and everyone is just baffled. Oh my gosh, yeah. It's crazy. It's like, why did you think that this song would... uh, This is probably the least offensive song that they have, honestly. Maybe, I don't know, yeah. Yeah. Um, Anyway, but this is around the part where Nigel just completely gets fed up with Janine being unable to manage the band and everything being terrible and so he walks out um david has this like interview segment where he they're asking like you know don't you feel bad that nigel left and he's like no no i'm sure we'll be fine without them i'm sure i'd feel worse if i wasn't under such heavy sedation yep i wrote down the same quote i wrote down the same exact i was like what are what (laughs) have you been sedated this whole time (laughs) like what's going on what is going on with david i know like david is just like it is, the the dynamics between the two of them are fascinating because Nigel is like he is more of the sort of like dynamic you know kind of leader and David definitely seems like someone who's maybe kind of he's definitely more of a follower and he's someone that maybe had issues in the past because he talks about how like what he loves about Janine is like Janine like got him helped get his life together like he he really feels like he owes it to her to kind of clean him up and figure out you know where where he's going what he believes in he talks about how like i believe everything i read which makes me better than people who don't believe anything (laughs) it's like what no that's not that's not better yeah he says so many contradictory statements that like yeah it's like two sides of the same coin but somehow you're choosing the worse side like he does that a few times yeah he's just kind of an airhead like he's a you know he's a talented musician but he's kind of an airhead in certain ways don't we also have a concert somewhere in here before nigel leaves where all of them like can't find the stage oh when does that happen and and they're like oh yeah go this way blah 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 blah." and then they're like yeah rock and roll like let's go and then it's like oh wait a minute where are we this isn't (laughs) the stage and then someone else is like oh no it's down that way then they're like okay yeah yeah let's go woo and it's like wait 
What? I think it's the other way. Turn That's around. the scene that I remember most my mom describing to me before I ever saw this movie. She just found it so funny. They're just like, yeah, yeah, let's go. It's oh, rock and funny. roll, rock and roll. And then they hit a dead end and they're like, oh, uh, okay, okay, this way, this way. Yeah, rock and roll. And people keep giving them the wrong directions. Like, and they can hear the crowd. They can hear the crowd above them cheering and everything. And they just cannot figure out how to get onto the stage. My gosh. Yep. Oh my gosh. Um <clears throat> let me see. Yeah, so they have the the they play like as their kind of low point. They play this after Nigel leaves. They play this amusement park where it's the sign says puppet show and spinal tap. <laughs> and the stands are just almost empty. It is so humiliating. They, I mean, they're so empty. I mean, who I'm like, what is this puppet show? Like, is this a children puppet show? Is this an adult puppet show? Like, what what is this event? I don't even know what this is. Do we know where this is at this point? Like, what city or state they're in? Um, they, It might have... It probably said, but I, I didn't write it down. I don't remember what okay. it said. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, it's just... I mean, A, how did they get booked into this? <laughs> like, family amusement park. But... Um, Janine knew a guy who knew a guy. Yeah, probably. But um, I wonder if Janine is the one keeping David sedated. <laughs> I think I think that's what we're supposed to assume, honestly. Yeah, yeah. I would be more upset if I wasn't under- so heavily so sedated. <laughs> Oh, it's man. just such a throwaway lie like he just so casually says it and it recontextualizes everything and it's like wait what <laughs> yeah yeah he's he's very out of it <clears throat> um so we have this end of the tour party in la where it's like barely anyone's there um it's very like the the first party is like in this cool you know at the start of the tour is in this like cool new york penthouse and like everyone there is in really fashionable clothes and this one here is like in some sort of like hotel at like some sort of hotel swimming pool but it seems like other guests from the hotel are just there in with the rest of the crowd um an interviewer is asking david about the end of spinal tap and like whether he's upset about the end and he has this like really long rambly thing where he talks about what even is the end and the end is like a thing that is coming and what this is my question to you (laughs) it just makes no sense oh and then um derek and david are talking about like oh yeah you know if spinal tap ends we could just work on other projects like our rock musical we've talking about jack the ripper saucy jack (laughs) which i'm not gonna lie i kind of want to see that (laughs) and then david's like oh yeah and i have this idea for an acoustic collaboration with the london philharmonic oh okay (laughs) good luck with that good luck with that yeah um but yeah, so they're they're about to go on for their last show, and then Nigel returns, and it's a bit emotional. Um, but Nigel brings the news that, hey, turns out Spinal Tap is doing well in Japan. Ian wants to come back and manage you and put you on tour in Japan. What do you say? And they're all like, hmm. <laughs> yep. Um, so yeah, they play they they play their show. Nigel comes on stage and joins them, and everything is forgotten. And then they cut to their well. Mm-hmm. I love how there's I love how there's that dynamic that like Nigel maybe won't do it. He's like, no, I don't I don't need to go out there. I don't want to go out there. But then he changes his mind and he goes out. Yeah, well, it actually it is really sweet because it's like as they're playing, they're playing a song called Tonight I'm Gonna Rock It. And Nigel's just watching from the backstage and you can just see on his face like how much he misses performing with them, how much he misses David, how much he misses being a rock star. And so he comes out and like David's like beckoning him like, come on, come on, come on. And so he comes out and, you know, picks up the guitar and they're all performing and then cut to them in Japan doing on tour uh, with a different drummer, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't catch that. I just caught it on this time around. It's very funny. Um, But yeah, so they're on tour. They're doing well. They're like sold out this auditorium and Ian's the manager again and he's brandishing his cricket battle. And that's the end of the movie. And then we just have some like random like cut interview scenes over the end credits that are really ridiculous. Best parts of the of the whole movie, in my opinion. I part of me, I mean, I don't think we can do it for like copyright reasons. Also, it's really long. But part of me just wants to like play that entire sequence on the mic so people can just listen to it. because <laughs> It's like there's no way for me to for us, at least in my opinion, like I don't even know how to talk about it because it's just five minutes of hilarity nonsense you know we have people talking about like 
what would their job be if they weren't a rock artist? He's like, oh, yeah, I'd probably just be like someone who's like, hey, we've got this thing that could work for you. And they're like, do you think that could make you happy? Well, what are the hours? Like, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> um but the one guy who's like as long as there are sex sex and drugs like i am fine not being a rock star oh my gosh yeah there's just so much so much there yeah so much yeah are there any other random moments that because i kind of you know skipped over a lot as i was just going through the plot are there any other random moments in the end or the movie it's um overall that jump out to you or that you wanted to um highlight or talk about i mean i i went through all of my notes so okay (laughs) there's that scene where they're going through some sort of metal detector to get to a show and Derek keeps setting off the alarm and then it turns out it's like that is such a like 13 year old boy joke oh my gosh and you can tell the tsa lady is like are you serious (laughs) like what 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 is is this it just he's like it's first he takes out all the coins in his pockets and he still sets it off and then he takes off his jacket and then he still sets it off and then they're running the little metal detector over and it's, it goes off over his garage and it turns out he has like a cucumber wrapped in aluminum foil in his pants it's so ridiculous just the way that like <clears throat> they're really kind of gross performative sexuality of that sort of rock star lifestyle i love how during the oh my gosh. the concert scenes they're all wearing like the tightest of tight pants oh my gosh. and the, the yeah. camera keeps just like focusing in on their butts and their crotches and it's just so gross um but so funny i do like the wardrobe in this movie i think that costume design is is cool yeah yeah it, it fits is. the characters very well mm-hmm. yeah yeah like you can not to mention the hairstyling obviously yeah i mean i the hairstyle makes sense for for the characters i don't you know like anything about the costuming or hairstyle in this movie but it makes a lot of sense for like rockers of this era <clears throat> and like what they think would be cool um and maybe was really cool at that at time i don't i don't really know uh let's see other like random moments let's see oh we didn't also didn't talk about just nigel having a tantrum because the food in the green room doesn't make any sense to him oh because <laughs> it's all like little tiny sandwiches and deli meats that you're supposed to fold up and put on the tiny pieces of bread and he's like i don't understand like this this deli meat is too big for this bread and ian's like very patiently trying to help him understand and he's just like no no i I don't like it it doesn't make any sense i mean it doesn't make any sense in my opinion i'm like why i i'm on david's side there i'm like why does ian not get it like this is this is this doesn't make sense it also looks like it's been sitting out for like four hours too it looks so unappetizing Um, let's see. There's a great line where they're talking about, I forget even what they're talking about. I think it's in one of their interviews, but just one of them is like, such a fine line between stupid and clever, (laughs) which really sums up this movie. They're not wrong. They're not wrong. Yeah. You see anything else that you wanted to bring up? I don't think so. I mean, yeah, I talked about everything in my notes. The only thing that's left is the ending scene, which I can't talk about because it's five minutes of just nonstop. (laughs) it's just just like yeah nonstop bangers yeah absolutely um all right well why don't we move into then talking about the box office and the awards and legacy of this movie so unfortunately this movie was not super successful at the time but it has really gained a cult following um it did not get any Oscar nominations, but it has been placed on a lot of lists of greatest comedies of all time, greatest scripts. Um, uh, the AFI has a list called 100 Years, 100 Laughs, and that's currently number 29. The WGA has a list of 101 funniest screenplays, and it's number 11 there. So yeah, there's a lot of love out there for this movie. Um, and it was a critical hit at the time, very much so. So as of now, Metacritic has it at 92 Rotten Tomatoes has it at 96%. Um, I mentioned before Roger Ebert gave it four stars in his review, and um, I pulled an excerpt of it, which I think sums it up, uh, sums up really well what I love about this movie. So he writes, This is Spinal Tap, one of the funniest movies ever made. It's about a lot of things, but one of them is the way the real story is not in the questions or in the answers, but at the edge of the frame. There are two stories told in the film, the story of what the rock band Spinal Tap thinks, hopes, believes, or fears is happening, and the story of what is actually happening. 
The reason we feel such affection for its members is because they are so touching in their innocence and optimism. Intoxicated by the sheer fun of being rock stars, they perform long after their sell-by date to smaller and smaller audiences for less and less money, still seeking the roar of the crowd. I feel like Roger Ebert found a way deeper meaning here than I think the movie is actually (laughs) asking you to find. I think he's digging kind of deep. I don't think this movie is really <laughs> that that intense, but I'm here for it. Not intended to be that deep. I mean, I think this one of the reasons that this movie has survived for so long, apart from it's just being, you know, very funny, is it does touch something in that sense of like what it feels like to be, you know, a rock musician or just an artist in general. I mean, it, I've read a lot of musicians have cited this movie as being very accurate to their own experience or kind of, you know, like this is this movie is kind of like, oh, man, I, I really this is really accurate to the rock star lifestyle. And I really don't want to become Spinal Tap, that sort of thing. Um, but I think just in that idea of, you know, you you do kind of get lost in the lifestyle, in the, you know, your own kind of pretensions and um, feeling of self-importance. But there's also that alternate side of you know that joy of just making music with your friends that feeling of um exciting life-giving experience of being on stage being adored by fans um being able to perform music that allows you to express yourself like this movie because i think it, it really does try to um you know be very accurate in the way that it it mimics the the rockumentary format it helps you get into that mind space and i think it really does there's a lot of texture to it and it brings you in emotionally and sometimes in ways that you might not expect. But mostly it's just really silly and really dumb, which is also why I love it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So yeah, this is a shorter than average episode, but for a shorter than average movie. Yeah, this movie is very short. It is very short. Yes. Um, but yeah, just very silly. So if you've never seen it, go watch it. So final thoughts. Um, yeah, for me, this movie is it's just hilarious. It's just so much my style of humor. I, Like I said before, I cannot even read through a, the quotes page on IMDb without cracking up at certain things. Um, I think all the just the the amount of creative collaboration that went into this, I did not realize until I started uh, digging into it. But I did not realize it was such a close collaboration between those four main players Rob Reiner, Harry Shearer, Christopher Guest, and Michael McKean. Um, But it is great. You feel that energy, and there's so much talent on display. I think the amount of improvisation that went into it and the the musical stylings and the variety of music st- musical styles that are used in it, I think, are just really, really impressive. And, you know, it's one of those... I feel like a lot of comedies, especially dumber comedies... Um, Bill and Ted also comes to mind where it's like, it does take a lot of skill and intelligence to make something this dumb, you know? And I think that's true about this movie um, overall. I would argue the same thing for Napoleon Dynamite, but I know you hate that movie. Oh, I don't hate that movie. It's just, it doesn't really work for my style of humor. But I I think there's a lot of talent that went into it, sure, certainly. Yeah. Oh, man. I love that movie. Um, I wanted to ask, I don't I don't remember if you mentioned this. I know you said that this was a movie that was a family favorite growing up, but did you say how old you were the first time you saw it? Because I'm curious. I think this is one of those movies because it is rated R. Um, is it? I, it oh, is. I guess that makes sense. But it's yeah. this is the 80s. There was no PG-13 at the time. Um, okay. So I think it's rated R mainly for language, not so much. I mean, you don't really see a whole lot. It's more just like the language and the, t- the style of jokes and what's going mm-hmm. on and things like that. So this is, I think, I was at least probably in high school when I saw this for the first time all the way through. Okay. Um, I think this is one of those movies where my parents would show me scenes um, mm-hmm. when I was younger, but I yeah. didn't see it all the way through until I was at least kind of older teens. Gotcha. That makes sense. Okay. Yeah, because I was thinking, like, if you grew up watching this, I feel like if I was eight years old, I wouldn't get it. I would just be like, this is boring. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah yeah okay gotcha um yeah I mean so for me with this movie I mean again I I enjoyed it it was fun I thought it was funny um I don't think it had as much of an impact on me because again I've spent hours upon hours watching things of a very similar type of um you know tone um but yeah I mean I think I'm definitely glad I watched it I think that similar to I think what you're 
what you said about your parents, I think that this is something where I will go back and watch specific scenes for sure that I really liked. I don't know if I'll necessarily watch it from start to finish again. Um, but yeah, I mean, I really, really love that credits interview sequence. I think it's absolutely a riot. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, thank you for choosing this. I think it'll be a fun, a fun thing to watch clips of in the future when I need a little, a little giggle. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I'm really happy that we did this. I, it had been a few years since I'd seen it all the way through. So it was really fun to rediscover and realize that it's still as funny to me as it always has been. I'm so glad for you. That's awesome. All right. So Tatum, do you want to tell the people what we're going to be covering in our next episode? Yes. We are pivoting big time. Um, So we have, for our last two episodes of October, we wanted to get a little bit Halloween themed and choose some horror films. A little bit spooky season. Yes, a little bit scary. Um, So next week we will, I have chosen, I have yeah, I've chosen for us to talk about one of my favorite horror movies, and I think it's kind of recognized as one of the best horror movies, uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre from 1974. I am really looking forward to talking about this movie. I think it's going to be, th- there's so much to, to dig into, and I think it's going to be good. So yeah, come back for uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre next week. All right. Well, thank you very much for listening. Have a good day. (laughs) Go watch Spinal Tap. (laughs) Yep. And also then watch Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It's a great uh, doubleheader. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) All right. Bye, everybody. Bye. Thanks for listening. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at yourpickpod at gmail.com. Our theme song was composed by Joel Rushton, and our podcast graphic was designed by Kara Shin. If you like this show and want to hear more, please rate and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. We're excited to have you on this journey with us. Until next time.